Yes, um, if I met you before, my name's David Smith, and I'm glad you guys are here. Um, so we're, we count every week. We hate counting attendance. We don't like talking about attendance, but we are at like 95% full, I think, in this celebration. And so if you just, especially next weekend with uh, Daylight Savings Time, if you want to wake up two hours earlier, we have a little bit of room left at the nine o'clock. Also just wanna to say to any of you folks that live on in like toward Mason and Westchester, uh, we still have room at the 10 a.m. at the Westchester campus and just came back from there. So no pressure at all, but if you do have some of that flexibility, uh, again, we just would love to open up more room for newcomers. We had somebody the other week who started leaving because they think there was a space for them. So we just wanna be mindful of that. Uh, Cody and I are also working with about five to six couples and starting some micro churches. So that will be a big help once we get that rolling. But in the meantime, if you got any flexibility, especially want to check out Westchester once a month, it's a lot of what you're experiencing here, just a little bit smaller, easier to get to know folks. And uh, so there's my sales pitch. So Amy tried to shame you with babies. I'm trying to shame you with stats on attendance. So perfect, perfect, perfect. Um, Everyday Kingdom's coming up this weekend. I've been to the first two, just registered last night. And I think it'd be the mature adult thing for me to tell you all sort of theological reasons why you should go to Everyday Kingdom. I'm gonna give you a different one. It is just fun. Like, I swear to you, I'm not trying to sell you. I'm not trying to exaggerate. It is one of the most enjoyable weekends of the year. And the reason why is you're not gonna have a talking head just speaking at you the whole time. We do things that are a little bit risky. We have fun, we have activities. Just enjoy having meals with people maybe I haven't gotten to know yet. So if you have any interest, man, be praying about it, thinking about it, I would love to have fun with all of you. And so we'll move to the student room into the auditorium if we get too many people. Friday night, I think as Becca said, is open to everyone, family friendly. If you just wanna get a taste of what Everyday Kingdom's about, just come out Friday night. And if you decide you wanna go for the rest of the weekend, we'll get you plugged in. But would really, really encourage you uh, to check that out. So, all right, well, as we get jumping into the message today, I wanna share with you a story from about a month ago where we had some staff members who just couldn't seem to agree on something. And the thing we couldn't agree on is that there was a disruption in one of our prayer ministries. And we had different thoughts on how we should approach it. So we all got together for an hour meeting, a small group of us, half the group believed, hey, we need to tackle this head on. We cannot have this disruption. We need to do something about this. And the other half of the group said, hey, hey, just, just calm down. It will take care of itself. Don't worry about it. Don't hyper control. And so we got through about, you know, 55 of the 60 minutes we were gonna be meeting and we still not, did not have a conclusion. We just couldn't come to an agreement. And it dawned on me, it was just a few minutes left. I'm like, oh my goodness. I have had an ace in my back pocket the entire meeting. I could have stopped the meeting in one minute with this card. And so I pulled it out and I said, guys, I forgot to tell you. You know, Rusty and I talked about this the other week. Now, you guys know who Rusty is, Rusty Gevert. He's our elder and pastor over prayer. He wasn't in this meeting. Rusty is also known by many to be the prayer leader of Cincinnati. That's not an exaggeration. I'm not just saying it because he's in Israel right now, but it is true. We are very, very blessed to have Rusty on our team and within our church. And so... As soon as I said to them, hey, I don't know if I told you this, but I actually talked to Rusty about this problem last week, everybody stopped talking. The discussion was completely over. And I said to them, what Rusty said, hey guys, be hands off, don't control, it'll work itself out. And after I said that, there was not one more word in the room. And even though Rusty wasn't there with us, Rusty got the final word. Nobody is gonna disagree with a former Bible smuggling house of prayer pastor, right? Like Rusty gets the final word. Now imagine another situation where there's a bunch of us in this room and we're having a massive argument about orphan care and everybody thinks they're right. And all of a sudden those glass doors open up and guess who walks in? It's Beth Guckenberger with back-to-back -back ministries. All of a sudden the conversation stops. Guess who gets the last word? the one who's done that ministry for 25 years and speaks all over the globe about the topic, Beth gets the final word. Or imagine you have a group of people arguing about how do you continue to act like a teenager when you're an adult? 
And then this gentleman walks into the room. You guys know Brian Rogers, our student pastor, right? <laughs> Brian comes into the room, discussion's over. You know, Brian is one of the longest tenured student pastors in Cincinnati. He's been doing this longer than anyone. He gets the final word. That is an ice bath, just to let you know in case you haven't seen that video. But what about if the conversation is about something a little more serious? What if the argument is about suffering? And the conversation you're having is, well, why is there suffering? How do we end it? How do we explain it? Like who gets the final word in that argument? Is it the person with the loudest voice? The one who suffered the most? Is it the one with the deepest theology? Who gets the final word? And this is how the book of Job ends. Now, this is our last week of the series. We'll continue to read in our reading plan, I think for another week. If you're not on the reading plan yet, go right through those wooden doors, grab a journal on the way out. You can jump in any time. But what you'll probably notice is that our Sunday morning messages typically go along with what we're reading or what we're about to read. And so when the book of Job ends, what we have is the definitive final word on suffering. And so what we've talked about this entire series is that the real question of the book of Job isn't why do bad things happen to good people? It's addressed, it's important, but the key question this book really is asking is why do I love God? Why do we love God? Is it because we've received good gifts or is it because he alone is the good gift? See, that's the difference between somebody who is a true worshiper and somebody who's just walking through the motions with God. A true worshiper loves God because of who he is, not because I've received the good gifts, because I understand no matter what I go through, he alone is the good gift. And so we are gonna finish our series on Job today and we are gonna discover the final word on suffering, what it is and how it can help us move forward in faith, because that's what we all wanna do. How do I move forward in faith no matter what kind of suffering finds me in the future. So let me pray and we'll figure out what the answer to that question is. So Lord, we love you. We thank you. Lord, as we all pray every week, like would you allow myself and anything else up here in the stage just to kind of fade back into the background. That it be your face, your voice, your presence that would come forward and impact and encounter us today. Lord, we love you. Take all motives, take my agenda, get rid of it. We want to hear from you alone. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So we pick up our story. Job, if you don't know this, has been challenged chapter after chapter by these men who I guess at once he considered friends. The relationship is hanging on by a thread at this point. And the big challenge could be summarized like this. Hey, Job, the reason why you're suffering is because you are in sin and you won't admit it. You won't confess it. And so for these friends, this is a little bit of their theological view. I don't think they're the worst people in the world. This is just how they see things. If you suffer, well, then obviously you're in sin. And so Job's response to this unfair judgment is that he starts demanding to talk to God. Like, God, it's time. And not only is he saying, I want to talk to God, he's saying, I'm going to take God to court. So demanding to talk to God is not necessarily an entirely good thing in this moment. Because what Job is saying is, God, listen, you don't understand what's going on here. I need to take you to court to convince you of my innocence. And this is the real comedy of the moment, that the, there's actually a thinking in Job's mind that I've got to fill God in on something that I know. God hasn't gotten the memo. Nobody's told him this, that I'm actually innocent. We see this in Job chapter 13, verse 3. Job says, but I desire to speak to the Almighty and argue my case with God. In other words, I'm taking him to court. Job 13, 18, now that I have prepared my case, and I'm picturing Job with stacks of paper, and you know, um, what are those old things that we used to carry around? Briefcases, briefcases, right? And he's like, I'm taking God to court. I have prepared my case, and I know I'll be vindicated. God, I'm gonna prove my innocence to you as if God has something to learn from Job. And I gotta be honest, I love Job's commitment to his innocence. Like he's never wavered. You guys ever seen The Fugitive back in the day? Like Harrison Ford, like, I mean, that is a man who is committed to his innocence. And that's where Job is at. 
but there's a lack of humility that's developing. And it has catapulted Job forward in kind of a prideful rant. And it has spanned dozens and dozens of chapters. And so finally, God says to Job, all right, Job, you want to take me to court? Let's go to court. Let's do it right now. And so God begins to speak to Job through a storm. Now, this is nothing new. We see God speak through a storm to the Israelites on Mount Sinai. We've got Elijah in a cave, and we've got Ezekiel by a river. God has done this before. He will do it again. But there's moments for sunshine. But in this moment, God says, nope, I'm going to speak to Job through a storm, demanding everybody's attention. Job wants to take me to court. Let's go. Here's what God says, Job 38, verse 1. And just see if you can find the moments of irony and maybe a little bit of sarcasm. Here's what God says. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, so Job, who is this that obscures my plans without words and without, with words without knowledge? Brace yourself, Job, like a man, and I'm going to question you, and you shall answer me. Don't you just think the beads of sweat are starting to develop on the forehead of Job? Like maybe I've taken the wrong person to court. Where were you, Job, when I laid the earth's foundation? Yeah, tell me. Do you, tell me, do you understand that? Were you there for that moment, Job? Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? In other words, was that you, Job? You put the cornerstone down of the entire world while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Who shut up the sea behind the doors when it burst forth from the womb? In other words, hey, Job, humans birthed children. I birthed the seas and the solar systems and the stars. Just remember, where were you when I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place, when I said, this far you may come and no farther? Here's where your proud waves halt. Job, have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place that it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it? In other words, this is God's nice way of saying, hey, Job, know your place. Make sure you know your place. This isn't like an angry parent pointing down. It's that subtle gesture of, hey, don't forget your place. In other words, know your role. And I want to pause right here because as I was reading this passage over and over again this week, what I kept catching my heart doing, it started to flutter because I, I kind of believed, I kind of expected an explanation was coming. Like here we are at the end of the story and you would just imagine this is how it should end. God pulls back the curtain and says, hey, let me tell you what's really going on. And so in this courtroom scene, God would go and take the stand and he would just explain what has happened. That's what you do in a courtroom. And maybe God takes the stand and he says, all right, guys, here's what really happened. Let's go back to chapter one. What happened is that Satan was roaming the earth. It was a bright and sunny day and he just walks into the throne room. Wasn't expecting him. And he starts kind of picking on me. He says, hey, God, you know, the only reason that people love you is because you pay them. You actually have to pay for your friends. And then God says on, on, on the stand, and then I said to Satan, fine, you think that's the case? That's what you believe? Here's my servant Job, who is upright, full of faith. Go challenge him. Go put some suffering on Job and see what happens. But we don't get any of that. There's no explanation. Like, have you ever watched a really good mystery movie at the end, the last 10 minutes, they'll kind of unravel the whole thread, and you'll be like, oh, that's what that meant. That's what was going on. God never gives us an explanation. And instead of getting an explanation from God, what Job gets is a revelation of God. And those are entirely different things. Job doesn't get an explanation. Instead, he gets a revelation. And what I'm wondering is how many of us are missing the revelation because we're demanding an explanation. We are so distracted, demanding an explanation that we miss 
the revelation of God. How many times do I find myself so focused on God answering why that I actually miss the what that he is doing? God continues, look at verse 22. In other words, hey, Job, have you ever entered the storehouses of the snow or seen the storehouses of hail, which I reserve for times of trouble, for days of war and battle? What is the way to the place where the lightning is dispersed? How do you get there, Job? Or what about the place where the east winds are scattered over the earth? And so God's address is overflowing with irony. And it, and it contains 77 questions that God asked Job. Now, why is 77 important? Well, we all maybe believe or know, or maybe you've heard at some point, seven is a symbolic word for perfection in the Bible. And so some theologians believe that the 77 questions were there for a reason, to make sure that we all know that this is the most perfect courtroom performance of all time. And you take those 77 questions and you want to summarize it down to one line, one line, what God is truly asking Job, he's saying, Job, can you explain, can you oversee, or can you subdue my creation? Job, can you do any of that? And Job knows the answer. We all know the answer. And he says, no, I can't do any of that. And all of a sudden, Job, just moments ago, he believed that his speeches were filled with all sorts of wisdom. But at this point, right now, that delusion is completely dead. I like what the theologian William Wearsby says. He says, God's purpose of this interrogation was to make Job realize of his own inadequacy and inability to meet God as an equal and defend his cause. Basically, what God is saying, Job, I am both the judge and the jury. Stop taking me to court. I'm only here because of my grace, my compassion, and my mercy. This is silly, Job. Don't do this again. I am both judge and I'm jury. But God wasn't questioning Job's integrity. I don't want you to think of God pointing down and picking on Job and going, your character, your heart, your integrity. I question it all. That's not what God's doing. All he's questioning here is Job's ability to explain the ways of God in our world. That's his big challenge. When it comes to suffering, blessing, saying, Job, you don't know what you're talking about. And by the way, you probably never truly will. Job may have lacked humility before, but he has it now. When God's done with his address, Job responds, chapter 40, verse 3, Then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy, and how can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. And I think at this moment, like, don't you feel it a little bit? Like, you just want to start applauding Job. Like, great job. You figured it out. But as I look over here, and if God is standing right beside me, his hands aren't clapping because God's not done yet. He actually has more for Job in this moment. He doesn't want Job just to be silent. He wants Job to be submissive. See, we could end the story right here, but God doesn't stop it here. He actually continues his address again because he says, Job, I've got more for you. I don't just want silence. I want submission. And so God continues his address. And this time at the very end, he asks Job about two things that are so sacred that I question whether I should even bring up here today. But it's these two things that he asks Job about that allows Job to turn the corner from silence to submission. You know what those two things were that God asked Job about? hungry hippos and fire-breathing crocodiles. I know that's what you were all about to guess. Go read chapter 40 and 41, one of the weirdest things in the Bible, that at the very end of this giant discourse, God questions Job and challenges him about hungry hippos and a Godzilla-like crocodile. Just go read it. It's actually true. That does it. That does the trick, and it moves Job from silence to submission. When he steps into the submission, Job 42, here's where his heart is at. Then Job replied, replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, 
Who is it that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things. That's a confession. That was me. I did not understand God. These things that are too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. Chapter, uh, verse five right here. Highlight it, underline it, remember it. Look what he says here. My ears had heard of you, God, but now my eyes have seen you. Do you know that right there is explaining the difference between somebody who is on fire for Jesus and somebody who's just walking through the motions? There it is. That's the difference right there. Verse 5. Somebody who my ears have heard, and that is it, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. So Job repents of his self-righteousness. He withdraws his accusations that God is unjust. And what we see is that before this moment, this is so important. If you're half asleep, just wake up for like 50 seconds. That's all I ask for you. Before this moment, Job has an impersonal knowledge of God. And when we just have an impersonal knowledge of God, that's that satanic lullaby that's kind of rocking us asleep. We're kind of awake. We're kind of not. I've got this impersonal knowledge of God. But from this moment forward, Job is alive. He's awake because he's had a personal encounter with the living God. And that makes all the difference in the world. Do I have impersonal knowledge or have I had a personal encounter with the living God? Because if you have not, you will stay at this place of impersonal knowledge. And that's not where we want to be. That's when the lullaby is rocking us to sleep. So how do we have a personal encounter with the living God? It is different for everybody, but here's what I would encourage you to do. Start asking today and every day for the rest of your life, God, I want to have a personal encounter with you. And keep asking it over and over and over again. God, I am your open, open vessel. Come to me, fill me up, whatever that looks like, whatever that means, but just ask him. I want to have a personal encounter with you. The writer Christopher Morley says this, I had a million questions to ask God, but when I met him personally, they all fled my mind and it didn't seem to matter. See, I think Job is in this space right now. I think Job has walked through this entire book with millions and millions of questions. And I wonder at this moment, they just don't really matter because he's encountered God in a personal way. Do you know that Jesus is in this room right now? Where two or three gather, he's there. If you're watching online, he's with you right now. And so when you start remembering and recognizing that God is with me in whatever space I go, then we can encounter him in a personal, personal way. And so where Job's friends called him a sinner throughout this whole book, God is very intentional at the end to say, no, Job, you're a servant. And the reason why he calls him a servant is because think about it. Job suffered in such extreme ways, but he never cursed God. And because of that, Satan loses this round and his accusations are silenced because there is a man and his name is Job who does not need to be paid by God to love him. Satan has been silenced. His accusation was people, you know, God, you got to pay him. If they're going to love you, you got to give them gifts. But with Job, even through it all, he never cursed God. Continue to believe, continue to love. I think that's what makes Job so inspiring. He wasn't perfect. He had many moments of meltdown, but he was a true worshiper. At the end, he loved God for who he is. And because of that, Job was able to give God the final word, which I'll tell you is not a strength of mine. You know, I've shared with all of you that the first two years, uh, two, I wish just two, first 10 years of Emily's in my marriage, and it still trickles in from time to time, she would have to come to me quite a bit and say, hey, listen, I just feel right now that you're putting more value on your ministry than our marriage. And I'll give Emily all the credit in the world. She just wanted to be able to share openly, just to be heard. So I would validate her. I would empathize. But I had a hard time doing that. And so we would get into these kind of argument conversations. And what I had to make sure is after she shared, I got the final word. And so she would say things like, hey, I just kind of feel like right now maybe ministry is more important. And I'd say, well, what are you talking about? 
I mean, last Valentine's Day, I got you 12, you know, a dozen roses or whatever. Don't you remember? Like, how can you say that, that I put the ministry for the marriage? Remember the last holiday. Remember the last birthday. Or, hey, remember the other week. Like, I was up till 1 a.m. watching Titanic with you for the second time, right? Or remember we wore, we wore matching T-shirts in the airport, which actually never did that. But, like, that would be the ultimate gift of love. If I would ever wear a matching T-shirt anywhere with my wife, if you're wearing a matching T-shirt right now with your spouse, you're a better man or human being than I am. But nonetheless, I would throw all these random things at her. Hey, remember that? When I did this, when I did that, and I loved you that way? And the reason I would always come back with that, and the reason I had to have the final word, is because what I wanted to do is to cement my point once and for all. And if I could cement my point then maybe we would never have to have this conversation again because that conversation made me feel so vulnerable because we're both sitting in this place of suffering and I don't have the answers. I don't know how to make this stop. I don't know how to fix this. There's an element of mystery still hanging over it. And so I hated being in those moments because I didn't know what to do. I wasn't even sure why it was happening. And so if I could get the final word, if I could cement the final point, then maybe it'd be over. I wonder if that's a muscle all of us need to strengthen just a little bit. This idea of living life well without all the answers. That is a muscle that I don't think I have developed nearly as much as I could up to this point in my life. But how do we get there? Not that we stop asking God questions, but that can actually live life well without having all the answers. 15 years ago, we started a ministry here at North Star called Grafted. Uh, it's its own organization now. Other churches are involved. I'm gonna show you a picture. We're not gonna show this picture online because this adoption is not finalized yet, but you'll see it behind me. And the picture uh, comes with one of the families we were able to give scholarship money toward so they could adopt. And this young man is in India where he's adopted his daughter uh, she's lived the first few years of her life in the poverty of India. And as I was reading the text, explain this picture, you know, the girl's got all sorts of issues. She's got lice, number one. That's not fun to bring home. She's been raised so far in poverty, which comes with a whole host of issues. And she was actually born with no eyeballs. She's not blind. She has no eyes. And so as I'm looking at this picture, I'm just imagining what's got to be going on in this man's mind all the questions he doesn't have answered yet. Like, how are we going to do this? Like, we can get her home, but then how do we raise her for the next 18 to 20? Who knows how many years? But isn't that why we love this picture? Why we can't take our eyes off of it? Because it's a picture that lacks answers. Yet there's somebody still walking forward in faith. We'll bring the little girl home. And so again, we can't have this picture anywhere online. The adoption's not settled. I saw some of you guys taking pictures. Make sure you don't post that. But the same point, I think that's why I can't take my eyes off of that. It's a picture of love because it lacks answers, but somebody's still moving forward in faith. Isn't that why the book of Job is so beautiful? It's a book that teaches us the same thing because we learn in this book over and over again that God's ways are too great for our complete understanding. And there'll always be an element of mystery in our life, especially when it comes to suffering. So the question I wanna end on is can we still love God without all the answers? All the answers to our health, our marriage, our future, our finances. And the answer to that question is yes. According to the book of Job, yes. We can still thrive in life even without all the answers. And so we get to the epilogue of Job, it's a happy ending if there ever was one. God reveals he's actually angry with the friends. He says, Job, pray for them so he can spare them judgment. Boy, I bet Job, Job loved that, right? The friends are probably embarrassed at the end. Job's family come rushing to his side. They love him. He regains double the amount of oxen and cattle and sheep and servants. He gets seven more sons, three more daughters, and he lives the rest of his life with a full, full life. I don't know about you guys, but typically... This is not the kind of ending we get on planet Earth. When you think about the physical hardships we get go through, 
typically you don't hear about people getting everything restored and everything improved on. Now, I love what Cody sent me a text in between the 9 and the 11 a.m. celebration. He said, you know, that's what's so great about this epilogue. It is such a good foreshadowing of what we're going to have when we go from this world to the next. And it's going to be more than doubled. It's going to be more than restored. But it's going to be so much better. I never thought of it that way. But here on earth, that may not be how it ends for us. But this is not why the second half of Job's life was more blessed. It wasn't the good gifts he received. It was his belief through it all even through the suffering that God alone is the good gift. That's why we love God. It's because of who he is. That's why we love him. Because he is God and we are not. That is the final word of any true worshiper in a time of suffering. He is God we are not. That doesn't mean he looks down at us. It just means us us understanding his place, his sovereignty, his goodness, his grace, his power and presence. That's the final word. Let's pray. So Father, we love you. We don't always understand. And Lord, I imagine there's a lot of us right now, we would love an explanation. And so Jesus, I just want to pray I don't even know the words to use here, but just that a spirit of revelation would fall on each and every one of us right now. Even those who are watching online, Lord, would you just move in a way, Holy Spirit, that would reveal to us more and more who you are and that we would fall madly in love with who you are, more than the gifts, more than being spared from the suffering, more than the blessings, Lord, would love who you are. We thank you for the blessings. We thank you that you have spared us in times of trouble. But Lord, help us to love you for who you are as the ultimate good gift. I just want to sit in this for a second. Lord, just right now, would you move and work in our hearts that we would tangibly feel
have in the New Testament. We have Jesus, and he lived this life that we could never live. He did all the things in perfection and humility that we could never live. Part of that was baptism. As, as he was baptized by his, his bug-eating cousin, heaven opened above him, and it never says that heaven closed. Heaven opened, and he was baptized into a life of ministry that he modeled for us. Then he, he later, he died a humiliating and humble death. And what was his last word there? Tell me. It is finished. Everything you're carrying, it is finished. Put it on my shoulders. This is why I'm dying for you. This is what I'm doing. It is finished. And then we, we fast forward a little bit further. Go to the last page of your Bible. And, and John had had this revelation of, of Jesus and what's coming. And the very last word that, that Jesus says in that, anyone know that one? Harder. I'm coming for you. Hold tight. Do everything you see in this Bible. And I am coming back for you. And that is the final word. That's what we are placing our stake in the ground on. And today we actually get to, to celebrate baptism here with, with at least three who are, who are saying, this is the banner over my life that God gets the final word. I'm coming in submission with my broken pieces on my lap, not asking why necessarily, but asking God, what are you doing? So I'm gonna actually invite those, those um, three that have signed up for baptism this morning. If, just like we always do, if you feel um, any tug on your heart, if you have not been baptized yet and you feel any sort of a tug, yeah, feel free to come up.
Sunday I was thinking about it because we had kind of announced it and I was praying and, and God said to me, now is the time. Now is the time. And because I, I mean, I've been following him and I, I, I adore him. I do. I adore you, Lord. <laughs> I um, But now's the time, so here I am. <laughs> can head that way. Anyone else? I want to leave it open. We would love to celebrate this with you today. We can do these any day of the week. We can do these, these any Sunday. So you be keep pressing into the Lord. Um, all right. So family stand up. This is kind of how we do this in our family. We celebrate big time when they come up out of the water. I want you guys to roar. This is, this is something so great that we get to celebrate. Um, so here we go.
proud of you three. So good. And just like we do every gathering, come up and get uh, communion. Come with your families or come alone, whatever you prefer. Come and receive prayer. Prayer teams will be down here as well. Um, and I would just love to pray over the three, especially here as we close. So, um, I just, just again, talking about the banner over them, I, that song, um, the banner over me is love. Uh, Lord, would your banner of love be over them for their lifetime? Father God, I pray for a lifetime of devotion, of clarity, Lord. Would they so clearly know who you are, Father, your character, your goodness, your sovereignty? And would they so clearly know, Father God, who you made them to be, what their place in this world is? Oh, I love the verse, um, I lift my eyes into the hills. You're where my help comes from. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Would their eyes be lifted up into the hills, Father God, and the 